Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. I think the really stunning fact of the matter is, and that was really stunning for me, was how compelling that story was, not just for, you know, a jury in Italy, but that story of Foxy Noxy, the like femme fatale sex game orchestrator spread across the world. Yeah. Like it was not something that was limited to Italy. This was something that was, you know, exploding as a story in the UK and the US and everywhere as far as like, you know, South Korea and, and you know, South Africa, like people were talking about this story. And I think part of the reason why it stuck was because of how crazy it was. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Oh, guys, welcome to The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. And my gosh, do we have an amazing special guest today. My friend, Amanda Knox, is in the house. Amanda, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. Well, let me, let me back up. So I met Amanda through GOT, Gathering Titans, as many of our audience knows. I, I chaired that program last year. And Mike Maddock, who's been a guest on the show, introduced us. And right when you came on, I was doing the show and I'm like, oh man, I really want to get her on the podcast. And I'm like, I can't do that. I don't really know her. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm like, I feel like a total like, I, I, yeah, I'm like, and, and I totally held back. I'm like, all right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to see if we like, you know, if there's any like, you know, if we're like, is there any like friendship that we build during GOT, which there always is. And I, and I met her daughter and her husband and I was like, this, she's so awesome. And so I was so glad to get to meet you at GOT. And then I asked you after after GOT. But here we are. Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, no, GOT. Wow. A really special place. Also really great speakers and, and incredible people that you brought in a super inspiring event. I definitely felt like the least uh, official of all of the people invited, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it, it was, you know, and so for uh, the, not most, no, well, some of our listeners remembers GOT. So Amanda closed the event and it was just a really emotional talk. And, and it, it, you learn a lot about who you are. And it, the cool thing about GOT is that you spend time with people throughout the entire event. So, you know, I, a lot of my friends are like, oh, Amanda's speaking at your event. Like, how is she? And I'm like, I'm like, her and her husband are nerds. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like, they're total fucking nerds. And they're the cutest baby ever. You know, and, and, and what solidified, you guys had two nerd moments at the event that solidified for me. The first nerd moment was when we did a murder mystery dinner and you got and you like lost your shit. I was so much fun. Oh my gosh. I was like all I was in inspector gadget mode. I was interrogating those witnesses. That was so much fun. It's all like uh, nerd nerd moment number one. Nerd moment number two was when you guys were like swing dancing. And I was like, all right, you you guys and you guys are so cute. But um but yeah, I was like, that's total nerd. I and I'm a nerd, so it's it's all good. But yeah, yeah, it was it was really cool to meet you at the event and and so here we are uh, doing the show and so um you don't know this but 
the, the greatness machine is all about two things. People who are living their passions and people who are creating greatness in the world. And your story is a different story. You know, a lot of the people come on the shows of maybe they built a business or they wrote a book that, you know, you know, changed people's lives in a specific way. But yours is really a story that was like almost born out of, out of, a situation that was, uh, I don't, I'm trying to think of the technical term for it. Super motherfucking fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think that is the technical term. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it became a worldwide, you know, you became a worldwide news sensation for something that is, you know, we talked about this at the, at the GOT event for like the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone, you know, more or less. So some of our guests may not know who you are, far and few between, I'm sure, but do you mind if I, you know, kind of go over your official bio and then we could jump into the show? For sure. Yeah. Awesome. So you you guys, Amanda Knox is an exoneree, journalist, public speaker, and author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Waiting to be Heard. She's also co-host of the podcast Labyrinths that she hosts with her partner, Christopher Robinson. And we'll be talking about that show today here on our show. She spent nearly four years in an Italian prison and eight years on trial for a murder that she did not commit. And that was between 2007 and 2015. And since then, she's become an advocate for criminal justice and reform and media ethics, which there's far and few of those these days. She serves on the board of the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice. And um, I I don't know if if you want to talk about it, but we can talk about the Netflix documentary, uh, Self-Entitled Amanda Amanda Knox as well. So, man, I'm so fucking pumped that you're here. I really am. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask like just a random question? Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm noticing a pink unicorn vibe going on. Can I just like get some of the background on the pink unicorn vibe? Yeah. So my my oldest son, who's 12 now, when he was really young, he was three years old. He was obsessed with Pinkie Pie from My Little Pony. And so okay. my wife, who's like a maker and she's super creative, every year for Christmas would make me T-shirts and she'd make me and my son T-shirts. And so... She just, he loved pink unicorns and pink and all this stuff. So she makes him a like Heather gray t-shirt with a pink unicorn on it. He's little, he's like his little three-year-old and he, she makes me a black one and, and it became like our thing. So every Friday we had casual Friday in my office and I would wear the pink unicorn to work. Well, lo and behold, like my business ended up growing pretty good size, about a thousand people. But at this point it was maybe a hundred. It goes super viral in my company. And and all the staff were like, we want pink unicorn t-shirts. I'm like, all right, guys, if you guys hit your goals, I'll get you a pink unicorn t-shirts. And it became the mascot of like my business life. And Amazing. so I, mean, like, I my, love it. Yeah. My old company that I, I exited called The Money Source, if you go on like Glassdoor, you'll hear them refer to themselves as pink unicorns. And so... But the story I came up with from that is I said, you know, being a pink unicorn is basically you are a mythical creature that is creating greatness in the world and doing amazing things. So that's like, that's my personal mascot. When I left, I took it with me. I'm like, oh, that's mine. I love it. So, I love it. <laughs> so y- you yourself, Amanda, are a pink unicorn. So there you go. <laughs> oh, thank you. So uh, yeah. Thanks for the question. I appreciate that. Well, so, you know, for, for, for listeners that have not heard your story, like, would you mind kind of giving a little bit of background on your story? Like, you know, how did, how did you, how did you become the Amanda Knox of today? Sure, absolutely. So when I was 20 years old back in 2007, I went to go study abroad in Italy. And I was there for about five weeks uh, living with um, a couple of other young women in a house nearby the university. A couple weeks into my stay, I guess five weeks, a local burglar broke into our home. And it's just by mere luck that Three of us roommates were not home at the time that he broke into our house, but one of our roommates, Meredith, was. And she was raped and murdered, uh, stabbed to death by this burglar who then fled the country and um, was later apprehended. But in that in-between period between me coming home the next morning and discovering that my house is a crime scene and the actual murder getting arrested... I was interrogated for 53 hours over five days. I was coerced into um, signing statements and I was arrested and accused of participating in this crime. And in fact, the, the way that it sort of spun out in court was I was accused of orchestrating a satanic sex game gone wrong. And 
it really came down to the police feeling international media pressure from the get go, feeling the need to arrest somebody uh, as soon as possible before they had any evidence available to them. And so they arrested me, um, my boyfriend at the time, who I'd known for five days. Um, He was my alibi. So they had to arrest him, too. And they also arrested my boss, who I was I was supposed to be going into work the night that Meredith was murdered. And so they they brought in my boss as well. And it's it's a crazy case because in a lot of wrongful conviction cases, they just got the wrong person. Right. Like right. they didn't have the evidence. They come back d- DNA years later and they find out who really did it. And then they release the innocent person. That's the story that you hear most commonly in wrongful conviction cases. In my case, what's really crazy is it wasn't too long into this entire ordeal that we knew who actually committed this crime. His fingerprints were found in Meredith's blood. His DNA was in and on Meredith's body. But because I had been arrested before that evidence had come to light, now the police and the prosecution were under pressure to either admit that they had arrested a perfectly innocent young woman or construct a narrative where I became this insane villain psychopath. And that's the route that it took. So for two, I was in prison for four years and on trial for a total of eight years. It was my entire uh, 20s basically were me fighting this uh, incredible case. Wow. So you know, it was interesting. Like I, I obviously, I kind of knew the very minimal. I, I don't, I don't pay attention to the news like at all. I'll give you an example. When I was in college, it, it was 1997 or something like that, and someone made a joke about an intern giving the president a blowjob, and I didn't know what they were talking about. So like that, literally, like I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, are you fucking kidding me, Darius? So like, I really don't, <laughs> I really don't follow the news that much. And so I knew like your name, and I knew. A little bit of the story, but I, I, I really the first time I learned about your story was at GOT. Like, really learned about it, and I have to admit, like, when on my on the flight home, I watched the Netflix documentary, and I was like, "This is fucking insane!" Like, the, it was crazy, you know. That, that it just seems like, to your point, this was I, I don't know if it's mismanagement or you know people trying to be right, you know, or protecting reputation, but but it it really it was like obvious to me. That this was that you, for lack of better words, got fucked, and it's yeah, it's it's a travesty that in this day and age that this is a real issue of people being, you know, either a accused and or b tried for crimes that they don't commit. So one of my questions for you is, you know, if you went back to November of of '07, because you know when you watch the documentary, I mean, one of my takeaways was I was like, man, you know, she's how old are you? Twenty one there. I was 20. Yeah. 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 You're 20. And I was like, yeah, like there's, I, I don't know how much of that was like, they framed up for the documentary to try to tell a certain narrative, but I was like, yeah, like there was like the part like with you and your boyfriend, like being, you know, uh, what's it called? Like hugging each other and kissing each other or whatever. I was like, yeah, like that's probably not a good thing to do in the midst of a murder trial. Obviously you're traumatized and you're, you're in a bad situation, but what do you think you would have would like, if you were now you're in your thirties, if you were to go back to your 20 year old self there, what would you do differently? If anything? Hmm. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I'm a, someone who's grown a lot since I was 20 years old and I've been through the experience that I've been through. So I, I clearly know that, For instance, the thing that I didn't know back when I was 20 was that my innocence wasn't obvious to people. It never occurred to me that someone would assume that I had something to do with this horrific thing. And I didn't really fully understand how much, therefore, there was the possibility that the way that I was reacting would be interpreted in a Mm. negative light. Like, you know, one of the things that you're, the thing that you're pointing to is that, that there's this image out there that it has been recycled over and over in the course of this trial, which was me and my boyfriend outside of our my house, now a crime scene. Right. And he's sort of holding me and gives me a kiss and holds me as I'm sort of standing there with a shocked expression on my face. Right. And the way that that like three second moment of my life has been turned into 
like people zoom in on it, put it in slow motion, put it on repeat as if to make it seem like I'm all I'm doing is making out outside of the crime scene that that was not the case. Right. On the one hand, I do think that there was an an immense amount of misrepresentation and taking Mm -hmm. that moment out of context. And on the other hand, there was me simply being like utterly shocked and confused about what was happening Um, to give a little bit more context for that moment. I don't know if um, if this came across in the documentary, but there was, you know, there were two roommates at home when we discovered that Meredith's body in our house. It was me and my Italian roommate, Philomena. And the big difference between me and Philomena was that Philomena saw into Meredith's room. She saw Meredith's body. Oh wow. And she saw the blood and the the horror and everything and started screaming and crying and was hysterical. I did not see into the room. Right. And so really how it all like shook out was the police are in our house. We're telling them, hey, it looks like there's been a break in. They decide to kick down Meredith's door because we can't get it open. Philomena is there alongside them. I'm in the kitchen answering questions to another police officer. They kick in the door and everyone starts screaming in Italian, a language that I did not fully understand at the time. Wow. So that image of me outside of the house with Raffaele sort of hanging on to me and holding me and comforting me. That was really because I wasn't even entirely sure what was happening. I was I heard that there was a body inside. I didn't know whose body it was. I didn't quite understand this the situation. People were saying words that I didn't understand. And so there is the part of it of the shock of here I am studying abroad and now I'm in the midst of this crime scene scenario. And on the other hand, it was immense confusion. So, you know. Looking back, I I try not to think about the things that I would have done differently because I couldn't have. I I really do genuinely feel that I was doing the very, very best I could in that moment. But looking back, obviously, (laughs) if I were the person that I am today, I would be like, okay, so I need to call a lawyer. Right. (laughs) And I did not know that I would need one. Um, As an innocent person, I think that's one of the things that makes us most vulnerable as we assume that we don't need help because we're innocent. That's the police are there to help us because a crime is happening in our home. They're the ones who are helping us. It doesn't occur to us that as much as the police are in our service, we are also at their mercy. And it never occurred to me that that was the scenario that I was in. Wow. I I really appreciate that answer. And, and, you know, so yeah, my recollection of it was, I didn't even, the the way my recollection of that Netflix documentary was, it made it sound like you were home alone. And oh, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, People kind of forget out my other two roommates. Yeah. No, no. Also there. (laughs) I'm I'm saying that that, that's not, that's not the narrative. I don't, I don't remember that part of the narrative at all. They made it sound like you went into the shower left. Right. And, and, and like, it was so no, and and I've had some experiences with the media, where it's like like bizarro world. The the what like where something happens and they twist it in a way to try to tell a story that didn't really happen, right? So I have, and, and I think a lot of people these days have very little trust in the media for that reason. So no, like what you just said right now, I'm like that was not part of that narrative, mm. like at all, at least from my recollection. And I just watched it like a month ago, so. I mean, there might be a little bit of confusion over the fact that I spent the night at my boyfriend's house and then I came back home to take a shower. And that's when I noticed that there were things amiss. And I started calling my other roommates going like, hey, is something going on? Why does our house look weird? And then I went and got Raffaele and had brought him back to the house with me. And then he called the police for me because I didn't even know how to call the police at the time. Yeah. And, and that, that was the other thing about the story. Again, again, me, I'm, I'm the guy that didn't know about Monica Lewinsky, like, like in when it was like the height of the news, the thing that struck me as absurd, because I don't think there's a better way to, to describe it was the crazy sex thing where I'm like, this is your boyfriend of five days. Like, I'm like, that, I'm like, damn girl, you really got to work. Like, no, no way. <laughs> like, yeah. like, so that, that was a, a part that I was like, that, 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 like, how does that, how, how would anyone even able to be able to conjure up that sort of story and get people to believe it? So that I guess is, leads to my next question is, 
do you think that that is a Italian justice system issue? Or do you think that's an American justice system issue or a justice system issue in general? Like when you look at that part of the story, which is a fucking crazy part, like it does not make sense for a, for a logical human being to say like, oh, a 20 year old girl moves to Italy five days in meets some nerdy dude and like hooks up with him and then con- convinces him and some other dude to like commit a crime. Like, like who like that, but in no world does that make sense. Right. Yeah, you you think (laughs) Um, I spent the entire time while I was on trial thinking like everyone sees through this, right? Like there are adults in the room who see that that sounds crazy. But I think the really stunning fact of the matter is and that was really stunning for me was how compelling that story was, not just for, you know, a jury in Italy, but that story of Foxy Noxy, the like femme fatale sex game orchestrator spread across the world. Yeah. Like it was not something that was limited to Italy. This was something that was, you know, exploding as a story in the UK and the US and everywhere as far as like, you know, South Korea and, and you know, South Africa. Like people were talking about this story. And I think part of the reason why it stuck was because of how crazy it was. Uh, and I and what's really sad for me is that it what it what it occurred to me was this is such a crazy story that people want to believe it. And if they want to believe it, why do they want to believe it? What is it speaking to in people? Is it speaking to their fears and fantasies? And in a way I felt like I honestly felt like I was turned into some weird kink in people's minds yeah. where they were like, oh, I have this this idea of the girl next door who's going to turn into this like dominatrix sex monster. And I'm kind of turned on by that. So I kind of don't want it to not be true. It it really, you know, the, the misogyny elements that really came yeah. out in this case were really shocking. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Well, for, and so I guess, yeah, that, that leads me to my next question. So thinking of that, and that was the word I was like, thinking, I'm like, oh, this is just misogyny, right? This is a, pat- I mean, I'm not against a patriarch. Like, I don't want to go down that road necessarily, but, you know, I am against the patriarch actually, but <laughs> I want us all to just get along. Um, you know, right? Yeah. People here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, there was that, it was a period of time and, you know, you brought up Monica Lewinsky and it's an interesting um, counterpoint because here we are looking at situations where sexualized women are vilified and stripped completely of context and people just go, oh, yeah, of course, of course, yeah. this sexual woman, we're just going to vilify. doesn't matter that she's a young woman, doesn't matter that there are powerful men who are actually making really huge decisions in this process and impacting people's lives. Like, no, we just sort of latch on. There was this period of time of latching on to the sexualized woman and vilifying and objectifying her. And I, I think I fell into that same mindset. Do you think that there's a cultural aspect of that in from an Italian standpoint that that people wanted to, you know, you know slut shame and, and and have this, again, sexualized vision of you in order to, like, make, I guess, feel safe a little bit? Mm. What do you I think? I definitely that? know that me being an American in Italy certainly made it easier for people to other me. And to present me according to a very unhealthy um, and um, unflattering stereotype of American girls, which is girls gone wild. I was portrayed as this girl who was in uninhibited and so sexual that I was capable of murder, like having the sexual propensity of a man and therefore the ability to commit violence like a man. And it, again, like it's. It's shocking to me that that resonated so much with people. But at the same time, they were doing something else to Meredith um, in depicting her as like this virginal figure who never had sex and therefore was a good girl. And it really, really hinged on on sexuality and whether or not female sexuality is to be condoned and what it and what it means, what kind of person you are if you are sexually active. It makes you a depraved person who is capable of violence. Yeah, it was was pretty outrageous. But again, like we're talking we're talking about really, really old, deeply ingrained ideas um, that are utterly misogynistic at their heart. And and so what city were you in in Italy again? Perugia. So, so do you think had the same thing happened in, let's say, a, a Rome or somewhere where it, maybe it was a, a little bit more less of a smaller city? Do you think that that there may have been a different result? Hard to say, because again, it's it's not like the, the local media started this story. Like it was from the very get go, an international media story, which meant that everything from the BBC to CNN to all like the biggest shows in Italy were all talking about it and no one was questioning it as much as I'd like to think like, Oh, it's just a backwaters sort of thing. Right. Uh, The way I don't think that my case is an example of it being a backwaters thing. I think instead it's more of a, wow, look at these prevailing notions that we still are accepting and, and perpetuating despite the fact that we think we have evolved beyond these really, really old, bad ideas. Yeah. It was, it was interesting in the documentary too, the, and I can't remember what news media, uh, the, the one gentleman who I think he's like English. I mean, you could see his like, well, I got to get the scoop or else they're going to get the scoop. And I'm like, that's not the fucking purpose, man. Uh, and, 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 and so I always tell people, I say, if you want to um, you know, change behavior, you have to change incentives. Yes. You know? I so- thank you so much for bringing that up, because I feel like I feel a little bit bad for Nick Pisa, the journalist, and the way that he came a- across in the documentary, because he really is speaking from his perspective, which is that this is the way my industry works. This yeah. is the way the media really works. It's that whoever gets the scoop 
the fastest and puts it out the fastest is the one who's going to have success and be rewarded. It's not the person who's going to take their time and do their homework and be reasonable. (laughs) That's just not the way that the industry works. And so really, we have to ask ourselves, why did we why did we consumers create an industry that works this way? And what can we do as consumers to ask for a different kind of journalism from our providers? And it's interesting to me, like the the, the, econ, the economics of it are yeah. an enti- are a whole thing. But I think there also has been this illusion that we've had, which is that People who are journalists are supposed to be the gatekeepers of what is actually important for us to know, right? We trust mm-hmm. journalists to tell us what is in our interest. That's why it's called being in the public interest. But if their incentive structures are, we just need to get as much attention as possible, no matter what, right. then it's not actually going to be, it, they're, not, they're no longer the gatekeepers of what is actually in the public interest and what is actually true. What did you did you find that was it even if you go to a and again, I mean, people who are listening to this might disagree with what I'm about to say, but let's say we go to like a New York Times or a BBC or, you know, these quote unquote more, you know, I guess, higher journalistic standard type of outlet. Did you find that they reported properly on this or was this just uh, but again, we live in a world of clickbait, fake news, you know, if anything, since 07, this has gotten exponentially worse right so i guess my first question is did you notice was there any journalistic integrity that you saw in this process or was this just like uh i guess a race to the bottom as far as who could get attention so there was plenty of journalistic integrity in the process of my case it's just those weren't those you know, articles or those journalists were not as loud and did not get as much of a reach as people who were repeating what the tabloids were repeating. And what was interesting about my trial, and it really revealed, again, how the media industry works, is people who are, you know, reporting on cases that are far away from them can't afford to send a journalist down to Italy who's going to speak Italian and have the relationships with the mm. people to do all of the sourcing and the, and the actual investigative work, what they're going to do is they're going to buy what somebody else has written in Italy. And so what I saw a lot of was a lot of really shabby tabloidy journalism being reframed as legitimate journalism abroad. Wow. And so you would see like, total crap that was not like totally without any factual basis to it being reported in the UK or in the US as if it was legitimate news. And that was merely because they couldn't afford to send somebody to do their own reporting, especially when things are happening so fast. It was with time that people came to be able to like actually dig in. And and I, I remember there's this really great moment um when i was still on trial where i again i i only saw this after i came home because i was in a jail cell in italy i was not seeing what the news was looking like here in the us as it was going on but i saw um i think it was anderson cooper at some point who was like wait a second weren't we promised like all this evidence that pinned amanda to this crime like right. where is all the evidence and that was but that was because like in the very opening of my arrest and the opening of this trial while I was being investigated, basically what was being reported was, look, we have new evidence and more new evidence and more new evidence. But ultimately, when it finally came to trial, so much of that, quote, evidence just disintegrated. And it was just one journalist who was trying to get scraps of information everywhere and and like things coming out of the woodwork that ultimately resulted like, oh, okay, that that homeless guy who's claiming that he saw Amanda, like he he had the day wrong. And like all of that did turned out to not. Um, or as my attorneys said while I was on trial, zero plus zero plus zero plus zero still equals zero. You can right. have a whole lot of zeros, but they still equal zero. Yeah, man, that's that's. I mean, the thought that the thought of going through some. I can't. I mean, it's it's unimaginable. And so, I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, the in the first trial, the worst possible outcome came to be true. You know, came to be true. You were convicted of 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 of, of murder, and 
And then, I mean, what, when you went into that cell and when you realized, wow, this is happening to me, can you walk us through a little bit of that? Cause I don't think anyone can imagine what that's like and, and, and God help anyone have to do it. And obviously you did, but what was that like for you? Yeah, that was uh, truly a existential crisis moment. Um, I walked into that courtroom 100% believing that I was going home that day. Wow. The way that my family always talked was that there's a light at the end of this tunnel. And that's going to be when the verdict finally gets handed down, that truth is going to win. And there's, you know, like it's truth beyond a reasonable doubt. Like I did not do this crime. And so my entire family was there. They were ready to take me home. I was ready to go home after two years in prison. And they, I, I remember that I couldn't really hear. I feel like I was maybe just so, so under pressure that like it, my, it's hard to describe I my senses like focused in and I was listening to the the judge pronounce the verdict and I was hearing like wah, 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 and then the word colpevole guilty. And I didn't even hear him say that I was sentenced to 26 years in prison. Like I didn't even hear that. I just I immediately crumbled like I felt like the foundations of the earth had completely shattered beneath me and the weight of the world was now on top of me. Like my everything flipped upside down. Everything I thought I could count on was wrong and gone. The truth didn't matter. My innocence didn't matter. And my, <laughs> I, I, I went back to that prison cell realizing that I was not just a lost kid who was waiting to go home. I was a prisoner. And whether I had committed this crime or not, I was a prisoner and prison was my home. And this was my life. It, it really, really was this. I feel like all of us have moments in our lives where it's our life is going down a path or a direction that we did not intend. And we can be in denial for a while about it. We can be like, no, that's not happening. I'm, I'm pursuing my path. Like, you know, we're in marriages that maybe are, are falling apart or whatever it is, maybe even like illness or sickness, something like that, where we're in denial for a while. I was in denial for two years thinking that this is all just a big mistake. It's a big misunderstanding. It's all going to be worked out. Everything is going to happen as it should. And all of that disappeared in an instant. And I knew that the world that I was engaging in was not a fair one. Yeah. And that I had to figure out what my purpose and my role in life was given these circumstances that were completely and utterly out of my control. Hey gang, Darius Mishaza here. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. So listen, I know we have a lot of CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business owners out there that listen to the show. And right now, if you're one of those folks and you're doing, let's call it a bare minimum of seven figures and above in your business, then what I'd like to do is give you an offer right now. How would you like to get your hands on the frameworks that I actually used to scale my last company, which started off as a small little seven-figure company to over $100 million in annual revenue. And I did it in less than two years, and I did it without costly growing pains, without the headaches that, that you usually experience when you are scaling your businesses. So if you're one of those folks and you're trying to grow your company, but you're, you're finding yourself stuck in that day-to-day, -day, if you're one of the listeners and you're getting grinded, this is your respite from getting grinded on in your business, you're listening to our show, and you're dealing with the breakdowns, you're dealing with inefficiencies, and you know, you've know you got that firefighter suit on and all the problems lining on your desk, and you're, you're not doing the work you're supposed to be doing, which is working on the business instead of in it, then what I'm about to talk to you about for the next call 60 seconds, this is precisely for you. Real quickly, though, if you don't already know this about me, prior to starting The Greatness Machine, I spent 20 years of my life as a founder and CEO of real-world companies. And during that time, I actually grew my companies to over $1.2 billion with a B in bootstrap revenue. In fact, uh, we scaled out my last company from 30 to 1,000 employees, and we did it in just 36 months. And we did it all by using a three-step framework 
that I call my scale map method. So that, of course, brings us to the purpose of this here mid-roll ad. Yes, this is what the podcast producers call these things. Recently, I created a 30-minute training, and what it does is it walks you step-by-step through all of my Scalemap Method frameworks. And you can watch it right now for free when you go to DariusScale.com. That's my first name, Darius, Scale, S-C-A-L-E.com. And what these frameworks do is they fix, they simplify, and they streamline every single aspect of your business. And they do it without the need for complicated scaling systems that are typically way too difficult and way too time-consuming for a busy CEO like you and from my, like myself was to implement. So if you want a simple and you want a proven path to remove yourself from the day-to-day operations, just like I did, so that you can do what you're supposed to be doing, which is leading your company to record growth without the headaches and without the growing pains, go to DariusScale.com. That's www.DariusScale.com. Watch the short video and I'll see you guys on the inside. Now, back to the show. Wow. Oh my gosh. I'm like, like, I just felt you big time. And that's, I mean, that's, that's horrendous. And so, I mean, obviously you came to terms with that. And, and, um, I told you before the show, I said, Hey, I really want to focus on after. And here we are. Like, <laughs> I know it's just so crazy. I get yeah. it. I get it. I get yeah. it. <laughs> like, hey, hey, let's fast forward to after you got out of prison. You know, I'm like, I can't do that. Like, 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 this is such like a harrowing story. So, so, so you, Obviously, your family like stepped up. You guys fought the fight, though. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I guess that's a whole that's a whole other story that we can get into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm like, like, I mean, let's focus on him now. <laughs> so, so yeah, like, like when you when like t- take us through that. Like, obviously, there was a process where you're like, I'm just gonna fight it, right? And you guys end up, I guess, tell our audience the story of how you inevitably got out because you spent yeah. four years, you had two years before, and I guess, how long were you before you, I guess, appealed and got out? Was it two more years from that point, or was it? Yes, four- yeah. No. So, um, I was in prison for two years leading up to my guilty verdict, and then I was in prison for another two years leading up to my acquittal. Now, one thing that's actually really cool about the Italian justice system is that appeals are kind of just baked into the system. It, mm-hmm. It's not like you, you you kind of automatically get an appeal if you ask for one. But the trick of it is that both sides of the equation can request an appeal. So a defense can ask for an appeal of a guilty verdict, but the prosecution can also appeal a acquittal. And that's what happened in my case where I was convicted, I appealed, I was acquitted um, because independent forensic experts were brought in by the judge and they confirmed what our defense experts had been saying all along, that there was nothing, you know, connecting me to this crime scene. And so they they found me innocent. But then my prosecutor appealed my acquittal. I was put on trial again. I was found guilty again, and it wasn't until the Italian Supreme Court finally took a look at the case that I was definitively acquitted. And so it was a eight year long process, four of which I spent in prison and four of which I spent here in the U.S. in a kind of legal limbo where I was facing extradition. I was under the spotlight in a really horrible way but also trying to live my life. It it was, it was uh, crazy to say the least, but it's interesting that because you mentioned, like, I think the key question here is how do you both accept the circumstances that you're in and also fight for what is right? And I think it really comes down to what are your core values? And, you know, I've been uh, taking your uh, the scaling up course, uh, thanks to um, connections at GOT. It's really awesome. And one of the things that it's asked me to really hone in on are what are my core values? And I realized that my core values are curiosity, compassion, and courage. 
So curiosity, because the truth matters and you have to be a curious person to genuinely want to dig in to find out what the real truth is, not just the whatever you want to believe. You just sort of decide that's what it is. It doesn't really matter what the facts are. Right. Have compassion for yourself, for others as they're going through these incredible circumstances that are largely out of their control and have the courage to face what is sometimes an impossible task. And that's what it felt like as I was fighting for my innocence, fighting to prove my innocence was, well, I already realized that for the vast majority of the world, the truth didn't matter. So on the one hand, the truth doesn't matter. And on the other hand, for me, it does. And so I'm going to pursue the truth and fight for the truth as long and as hard as I can. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's just such a testament to you and your persona and like your soul to like not let go and and to fight that fight. And it's so important that I guess there's a, there's some privilege there, right? Because, and I know we're gonna be talking about the innocence project, which, which like, I I feel like, I, I feel like if I was put in the same position, that's, that's what else can you do? Your back's against the wall, right? You either fight or you die, you know? Mm -hmm. And so obviously it, it went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court ruled in your favor. And by the way, anyone that's not seen like like the the documentary, or and I haven't read your book yet, but I saw the documentary on Netflix, and I was like, you'd have to be a fucking idiot to actually like. Once you start seeing the the uh, what do you call it, the evidence, <laughs> it's like uh, this is crazy that this. I, it gets even more crazy than the just the premise of how it went down. But but you see how badly the the police bungled the situation. It was a totally you know non sterile you know crime scene and and all these things. So obviously the Supreme Court saw through all this. Eventually, you ended up, you know, going back to Italy um, to speak to the Italian Innocence Project. Like, what was your reaction to that? Yeah. So when I first came home, I didn't know other wrongfully convicted people like I didn't. This was not the criminal justice system. And we talk about privilege, like the criminal justice system was just not on my radar before I was through this incredible ordeal. And so when I came home, I came home to a world where. I thought I would get to go back to just being the person who I was before everything had happened to me. That very clearly at the very beginning became very clear that that was not possible for me. I was being chased by paparazzi everywhere I went. And here I was with this lived experience that was extremely othering for me. I felt very isolated, even from, say, my own family, um, because no one had been to prison with me. And so here I was like with all of these experiences of living alongside people who were, I mean, I had lived alongside people who were guilty of crimes, but who had been victims of crime long before they had ever committed crimes in the first place. They were people struggling with poverty and drug addiction and, you know, neglect and PTSD and abuse. And, and uh, here I was just this like quirky kid who, liked, you know, to read fantasy novels and went to college. Like I, I was one of the few people in my prison who had all of my teeth, who could, (laughs) who could read and write. Like it was that level of neglect that I was exposed to. And I, I had no idea that people were suffering this much. And I had no idea that innocent people were being put in prison a lot of the time because they just did not have the resources to fight for their innocence. And so I felt very alone for a long time. And it wasn't until this, um, the director of the Idaho Innocence Project reached out to me and he said, look, I know you're struggling. You need to meet other wrongfully convicted people. And so I went to the first ever Innocence Network conference, which is a once a year event where all of these exonerees from around the world come together and meet each other. And I like walked into that space, like terrified because the last place I wanted to be was somewhere where hundreds of people would recognize me. But I walked into that room and two men immediately ran up to me and hugged me and said, you don't have to worry about a thing, little sister. We know. And both of these men had spent over a decade each in prison here in the U.S. for crimes that they didn't commit. And ever since then, that moment changed my life. I realized that I belonged to a tribe of people who I never even knew existed. 
and I made connections with people. That was where I met um, Martina Cagosi, who is one of two people to have started an Italy Innocence Project. It did not exist while I was on trial. And in 2019, they were holding their first ever big public event to sort of announce their existence and to talk about issues that um, that resulted in wrongful convictions like, you know, coercive interrogations and uh, faulty DNA evidence and all of that. Mm -hmm. And they invited me to come be the keynote speaker to talk about um, trial by media. And I was given two months to decide, like I had, I was there and they were like, it's happening in two months. Like, can you do it? And I had not been back to Italy since everything. I was utterly terrified. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I was afraid of everything from people trying to arrest me for more crimes that I didn't commit, just trying to frame me for other crimes. I had no idea. I was afraid that somebody might try to kill me. Um, in a sort of vigilante justice kind of way, because I'm still a very controversial figure in Italy. And so I, I went, I, but I also went into it thinking like, this is, this is my chance to really tell my, my side of the story and to do so to bring, to help bring attention and light to this really important project that doesn't exist without the support of people who need it to happen, like needed to be there. So I went and it was uh, it was extremely overwhelming. The paparazzi in Italy are even worse than they are here. Right. Um, they they have I, I was swarmed. I was absolutely just assaulted by cameras and people yelling at me as soon as I stepped foot in the country. And it didn't go away the entire time I was there. And so while I was at this event, I had a bodyguard with me and I spent most of my time in the basement hiding from them. When um, I did go up, I went up a few times to listen to the other speakers, many of whom were friends of mine. Um, there's this really beautiful exoneree couple that live in Ireland. Um, they're two exonerees who both spent time on death row. And then after they got out of prison, they felt they met each other and fell in love. And now they wow. have this like retreat center for exonerees in Ireland. They're the sweetest. And they were talking about like death row and their anti-death penalty and all of that. Um, I wanted to be there to, to hear their talk. But as soon as I sat down in this auditorium where, you know, the lights are on the stage, the, the seats are all, um, you know, darkened so everyone can pay attention to the stage, a spotlight, a literal spotlight was put on me so that photographers could take more pictures of me. And so I instead left and I spent most of my time listening to other people from behind stage. And then when it was my time to get on stage, first of all, the person who introduced me spent 45 minutes introducing me because he felt <laughs> compelled. He felt compelled to explain why I had been invited and to justify to the audience that I was a wrongfully convicted person who deserved to be heard. And then I got up on stage. I told my story and, you know, it was incredibly emotional. I, I did the entire thing in Italian. And at the end of it, I didn't know what this audience was going to do. I really didn't. Um, they all stood up and gave me a tremendous round of applause. And and I was sort of whisked away off stage by the um, bodyguard afterwards. And he sort of took me down the stairs into this dungeon basement. And at the like at the bottom, when we finally got down there, he just gave me a big hug and he said, perfetto. Yeah. And after that, I was receiving messages from people in the audience who were saying, oh, my God, I had no idea. This is not the story that the media sold me. Wow. And and it was it was incredibly encouraging. Um, but it was it it took a lot for me to <laughs> to get there. And I'm glad I did. I've always found that, like looking in the face of what scares you and confronting what scares you is always worth it. So. That's again a little bit why courage is one of my core values. Oh man, yeah, I love this, and and I love that. That's that. Just again, like to to do that it must. I can't imagine how that would feel. To it's like confronting your a bully or the dragon, right? Going out there and putting yourself in this such a vulnerable position. Because to your point, you know, if there if this 
you know, if this country or this media or this judicial system has a bone to pick with you, who the hell knows what they're going to do? They already fucked up once, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's this thing in conscious leadership around a knower and a learner. And, yeah. and, the, and when people want to be right, they'll do whatever they have to do to be right, even if it's wrong, you know, versus yeah. uh, to your point around curiosity. Curiosity is one of my top five core values. So this, like, I don't know anything and, and to teach me. Right. And so I think that there is a large amount of bravery and curiosity for you to do that. And, and, and it, again, I think it's just that work, you know, you met Kat Hoke at the event and Kat's been a guest on the show and, and I've gotten involved with her organization uh, started to at least. And it's, disturbing to know that the, we live in a world where these things happen the way they're happening. And, and I think that it takes power and voice and privilege for us to like stand up. And for you, like, you know, your life more or less could have gone a hundred different ways. And for you to like face that, those fears, I mean, bravo to you. So mm -hmm. bravo. Thank you. I mean, I think that it, I'm trying to do something that I don't see happening a lot in the world, which is something called restorative justice, where, you know, harm happens all the time in the world. And a lot of times that harm doesn't get acknowledged and doesn't get healed where sort of scar tissue sort of goes over it or you sort of live with this wound for the rest of your life and you find ways to live in spite of it. But I'm wondering if there are ways to live because of it and to and to make connections even across barriers of harm. And I, that's why I think Kat Hoax work is so amazing because yeah. like she's seeing the human potential in people who have done harm and like i didn't go to italy to like scold them for you know hurting me right. i i went because you know all of us are implicated when the criminal justice system gets it wrong yeah and you know talk about incentives like no one wants to get it wrong Right. But right. like no one's sitting there cackling, being an evil person going, yeah. I'm going to put an innocent person in prison today. Yes. Doing that. <laughs> yeah. So if that's if that's if that's the case, like then what went wrong? How is it possible that someone thought they were doing the right thing, even when they were doing the wrong thing? That's yeah. the more interesting question. Yeah. And 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 it's I mean, it's it, it goes to the human flaw, right? And that there's no perfect system, but how can you make it a better system? You know, mm -hmm. and um I have um, you know, a couple of questions. I wanna I wanna pivot to your amazing personal life because thank you. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I um so when, when I first met you at GOT, the, the coolest thing about that was to meet your husband, uh, partner, husband, husband or partner, which do you guys go by? Um, he's my husband now. Okay, he was cool. my partner before we got married. But yeah, I, he's also my partner in like everything. Like, right. You know, like so... <laughs> Husband, he can be my husband. Hus husbander. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, your part's husband. Um, so yeah, um, he, uh, I met Christopher and your daughter, Eureka. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. So yeah. um, everyone who is um, feeling just not a hundred percent today needs to Google your daughter's picture <laughs> and their, uh, and their world will brighten. So your daughter has, so my, I, my son who the pink unicorns based on had these amazing cheeks when he was like one. And so does your daughter. And so I saw your daughter and yeah. I'm like, Oh, she has the one thing I actually have to disappoint your listeners though, is I actually don't put pictures of my daughter oh. on the internet. So yeah. sorry, yeah. but yeah. she is ridiculously cute. Oh. Um, um, I promise. <laughs> like, like I'm talking Gerber baby award winning. It's, it's like 0.1%, 0.1%. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah. So after all this, like, like you, you met your husband, like tell us a little bit about that and, and the, and your daughter. And I'd love to talk a little bit about labyrinths. Like give us the update yeah. on what's going on in life. Yeah. So um, I met my husband because he's a novelist and I was doing arts correspondence for a local newspaper. And I happened to have been given a copy of an advanced copy of his book to review for the paper. And so I was never anticipating meeting him. It was at a time in my life where I was not going out of my way to meet people who I didn't already know. But I really loved his book. He happened to be doing a book reading at my local bookstore. So I went to check it out. And it, I, long story short, like at the end of hanging out and me interviewing him for the paper, he said, hey, we should be friends. And it was a big deal for me because 
I did not make friends with people. I never thought that I would get to have a normal life and be able to meet people in the world like a normal person and trust them enough to become friends. But he was one of my first friends that I made after I was fully exonerated. And um, we started dating like nine months later. And you know, five years later, here we are married with a baby. We have, um, we do all of our work together. So we, um, have a production company called Knox Robinson productions. We produce, um, primarily a podcast called labyrinths where we interview people about times that they have felt lost and how they have found their way out again and how they have integrated that experience into their lives. So anything from, you know, our most recent episode is interviewing a woman named Alison Levine, who was one of the first women, um, all women groups to, um, to summit Everest. And, you know, what's that experience like being a, a woman mountaineer in a very like man mountaineer world, what she's learned from, the failures in her life when she failed to reach summits, but then came back years later to reach them again. But also I've like interviewed people about psilocybin and psychedelics and losing your mind for the sake of like for therapeutic reasons. Or I also documented my whole fertility journey and how I had a miscarriage. I interviewed a lot of people about their fertility journeys and um, infertility journeys, really, um, yeah. how people have struggled with something that feels so incredibly fundamental to our lives. And you'd never think like, this is the one thing that I can't have. It's insane. So really great series on that. But yeah, we just, we just plug away and, and try to dig into these stories that are deeply, deeply personal to people Um, And so interestingly specific, but at the same time have resonance with everyone because we all have moments in our lives where we feel really lost and we don't know where we're going to go, but we find our way somehow. Yeah. You know, so you don't know this about me and I'm going to send you a copy of my book, which is the core value equation. So I wrote a book about how do you build core values? And I, I actually think that values and you, you, you alluded to it that for yourself, but I think core values are a compass for when you're feeling lost. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, I and, agree. and, and that's, it's at least it served. And I mean, it doesn't make it like, it doesn't fix the problem immediately, but it gives you pointers, you know, yeah. of what direction you want to go into. So, so you guys are doing labyrinths. Um, you know, obviously that's a big project that I know that you guys are, are working hard to get traction on. What other stuff are, are you working on or what, or how can people interact with you if they want to like do some business with you guys? Oh, that's a, that's a great idea. Um, so we are, um, always doing media, um, we're, we're writing stuff all the time for different media outlets, but we also, um, absolutely can help people. Uh, Our sort of business principle is we inspire courage and curiosity and compassion in others through storytelling. So if there's any if anyone is ever interested in discussing how they can use storytelling to inspire their core values in others or how they can tell their own stories, we're happy to get involved and help with that. Um, and then beyond that, we're working on a number of different TV projects that are really exciting and are in the works, but I can't give many specifics. So All right. I'll, uh, I'll have to hint at them <laughs> they're, they're gonna have to follow you <laughs> they'll be out there yes you can follow me um on twitter at amanda knox and on instagram at amama knox um and you can also find all of my work at knoxrobinson.com cool so we'll put all that stuff in the show notes so that everyone can connect with you and i'm gonna do you mind if i can i plug your speaking because oh yeah please so yeah. i will say this because a lot of our listeners are involved with different groups that bring in speakers so, so amanda was brought in to uh speak at the event uh she graciously accepted the invitation and uh yeah she is a fucking animal and she crushed it <laughs> so uh, i i i use the f word i may use it a lot but i use it meaningfully um no you were amazing it was it was like you double triple standing ovation and like we're generous with our standing ovations but like that that was like the, that was like i haven't seen that many before um uh-huh. and it was it was really it's just such a such a it's a hard story to hear, but you do it so like, with so much humility and so much, I guess, tenderness for yourself and for the audience. And and I think that any listener that wants to bring in an amazing keynote, like Amanda's your person. 
So. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I, I absolutely love, um, especially I love meeting with people in like YPO and I'm starting to meet people from EO because I love that sense of community and that sense of continuous learning and purpose. Um, that really resonates with me. So I always feel very comfortable and happy to share my story in those kinds of scenarios. Yeah. Well, you do it really well. Thank oh my you. gosh. We're at the top of the hour. Um, I could go for another hour with you. Um, <laughs> Amanda, this was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on the show and spending time. And most importantly, I appreciated singing uh, Flight of the Concords to you. Oh, that just that I can't tell you how much that means to me that you started it off that way because everyone always wants to make everything so serious with me. Yeah. And it's like, I actually like to have fun. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we I, I don't have the rights, the copyrights to the song. So if you want, if you're listening to this on which most of our listeners are listeners, you got to go to YouTube to The Real Darius to see me sing to Amanda. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you too. Okay. Peace out, everybody. We love you guys. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen and share it with them. Leaders are the best givers, and after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. Appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.